book of Colossians, and we're in Colossians chapter 2, and verses 1 to 5 for this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read this passage. Um, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this testimony of Paul's ministry to the church at Colossae, for his prayers, but most of all, for his testimony of Jesus Christ, of who he is, his invaluable, inestimable worth, of his greatness and his glory. Lord, please be with me and with your people. Pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we How do you care for someone you've never met? Think about that. How do you care for someone you've never met and probably may never meet? Some of us, we can probably think of several different ways we can do that, and uh, especially given the day and age in which we live with the technology of the internet and cell phones and several different methods of mail and shipping and all the different companies that can ship packages. There are many ways we can care for people we've never met and probably never will meet. And uh, many of us, many of you, uh, send money and packages and maybe even letters and emails to missionaries and missions organizations and parachurch ministries and other um, nonprofit organizations and other churches around the world to show your support for them and providing care and much-needed resources, that, that's good and well. I remember um, just thinking about caring for people that you've never met. And I, I remember when I was young, um, there was this thing which we were encouraged to do in school, and maybe some of you have done this. Maybe there might be a couple of you that still do this, and, and uh, this opportunity we were given to engage in, and, and that was to have a pen pal. And uh, we, we, which in school, it was usually another kid your age from another, another school or somewhere else in, in, in the country or another part of the world, and, and you would write to this kid once in a while to encourage and encourage them and learn about them and exchange stories. And, and uh, but more importantly, um, at least from the teacher's perspective, you were to learn how to write <laughs> and how to write letters and that, that um, it's important to write a letter and it, it is um, encouraging and touching to receive a letter. Um, I think I had a pen pal in school that I wrote to once or twice and, and that was about it. And then I moved on to more important things like all the selfish interests young boys have and <laughs> Um, however, I, I do remember um, receiving letters and packages during my deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and many of those came from random, unknown individuals whom I've never heard of nor met, and uh, they greatly encouraged me. And it's one thing to receive a, a care package of goodies and things that you need and treats um, from an organization. Um, but to receive a handwritten letter from an individual whom you've never met and to read that they are thankful for you and even that they are continually praying for you is is 
It's both encouraging and compelling. And the interesting thing about this passage this morning, which we are studying, is that the Apostle Paul confesses that he has a great struggle. And not so much a battle, but a labor and a toil for those whom he has never met. And he is laboring for them while he is in prison. Which raises the question, what's he doing? How is he struggling on their behalf? How is he toiling for them? How is he laboring for them? And in this passage, in Colossians 2, 1-5, to the Apostle Paul, he explains the twofold purpose for which he wrote this letter to them. Two reasons which encompass his ministry to the Colossian church. First, that they would know the extent of his ministry. His purpose is for them to know the extent of his ministry to them. To understand his struggle for them. In verse 1 he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul writes this letter along with the uh, letter to Ephesians and the letter to Philippians and um, the letter of Philemon um, roughly around the same time while he's in the Roman prison, which we learn about towards the end of um, the book of Acts. He's there in this prison, and, and he's struggling for them. He's laboring for them. He writes letters to them. But what could Paul do on their behalf in prison? What, what could he do? And, and just thinking about him in the Roman prison, and yes, um, prison was a little bit different than um, in those days and our prisons today, but there's still a lot of similarities. It was a lot harder for Paul, but um, some things may have been a bit easier. But it makes me think of, of, of prison. And um, throughout my, my time um, in the military and, and in the National Guard, I, I've met um, quite a few correctional officers. And uh, they would tell me about some of their problems in, in prison and problems with prisoners. and, and um, one of those problems that they would have, that they would have to uh, search for in the cells and uh, amongst visitors, is cell phones. The cell phones. Because many of the criminals in prison, and, and some of them even, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth time um, prisoners, were gang leaders. Um, even, you think of the bigger prisons, cartel bosses. You, you think of um, maybe movies or shows or news reports of, about uh, mafia leaders going to prison. And uh, they don't really cease to op, you know, stop operating as a boss. They're, they're still getting things done. And sometimes they're even more effective while they're in prison because they can communicate. They can communicate to the outside world. They can communicate to people in their organization. They can still do things even though they're in a cell. They're, they're still having influence. They're still operating. They're still um, doing nefarious deeds even though they're in prison. And this is essentially what Paul is doing, not in a criminal fashion, not in a evil fashion or a nefarious fashion, but He's doing good things while he's still in prison, and those good things he's doing is by way of communication. And, and there's a few ways that Paul is able to communicate to the churches, to other believers. First and foremost, he, he communicates practically. He communicates practically as believers um, can come and interact, and, and, and even as he says in many of his letters that they bring him aid. They bring him aid by way of um, food and clothing and resources and encouragement and news about the churches and what's going on. But then Paul is able to communicate to the churches and believers by sending 
these other believers back out by um, organizing and, and sending some of the, the trusted disciples like Timothy and Epaphras and Epaphroditus and, and, all, and Tychicus and all these other um, disciples which he speaks of that he sends to these different churches. And, and as he sends them, he also communicates prophetically as he gives them light, letters to go with them. Paul communicates practically by sending these other disciples to other churches and, and directing them where they are to go. And, but he also communicates prophetically by writing and giving them letters along the way. As an apostle, um, the, the, these letters are divinely inspired. We, we do know that he sent other letters that aren't in our canon. There was another letter to the Corinthian church, which, which isn't included in the canon of Scripture. But he communicates prophetically. But most importantly, Paul's third way, third form of communication is he communicated prayerfully. And this is what he talks about in this passage here. This is the great struggle he has. In his commentary on this passage, Curtis Vaughn writes this concerning Paul's struggle. He says, struggle the, the Greek term agona, which denotes strenuous activity, here speaks of deep and earnest solicitude. The powers that wrestled with Paul for the ruin of his work were real and resolute. He therefore had to meet them, foot to foot, force to force, in Christ. The particular struggle Paul had in mind appears to have been that of prayer. At the time he wrote these words, he could not move beyond the walls of his rented house, being continuously held by the chain linking him to a Roman soldier. But even under these circumstances, he could engage in the combat of prayer and so exert himself strenuously in behalf of his readers. This, before us, this brings before us an aspect of Paul's prayers that we often overlook. Namely, that they sometimes involved him in a truly awesome conflict, an intense struggle of the soul. He, he, he likens this to the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweated great drops of blood, praying for strength, praying for his disciples, praying for the church. This is the, the great struggle that Paul has, and sometimes we don't see prayer like that, or sometimes we diminish prayer. But prayer, because it is quite literally and simply speaking to God, it's communication. And I'm, I'm thankful that in my own life, um, I, I was giving clear um, examples and illustrations of the power of communication. When, when I was deployed to Iraq um, and I fought in the Battle of Fallujah, um, and I don't say this boastingly, but um, I was one of the most dangerous men on the battlefield. It's not because I had great wisdom or tactical knowledge. It wasn't because I was super strong or as I was any um, special forces type soldier or operator. It, it wasn't because I was super fast or I had, uh, I was good at shooting. It's because I had a radio. I was a radio operator. Through that radio, I could call in close air support. I could call in artillery, mortars. I could call in a medevac could call in resupply. All these elements of warfare and combat were at my disposal, and I could call upon them. The power wasn't in me. The supplies weren't in me. I just called for them. That's all I had to do. And, you know, the problem of prayerlessness in the church is twofold. First, we forget how dependent and weak we are. And second, we don't fully understand how great and powerful God is. 
And my, my time on the battlefield, I, I could see that. There was no power in me. The power was outside of me. But I could call upon that power. And this is what happens in the church here, in Paul's life, in the prison cell, as he's calling on that great power from God. He's struggling, he's wrestling with God for this power to go forth into the church that they would be fortified, that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged so that they could stand firm in the spiritual warfare, in the spiritual battle. But why did Paul struggle so much in prayer for them? And why did he want them to know how great a struggle he had for them? He, he wants them to know the extent of his ministry and, and, and first and foremost to, to understand that he is struggling for them. That he is laboring for them. Even though he's in a prison cell, even though he's locked down, he has not given up. He has not quit. He has not laid down. He is continuing, continuing to struggle for them, to labor for them, to toil for them, and he does so in prayer. But he also wants to understand, he wants them to understand his concern for their hearts, to understand his concern for their hearts, that they would be encouraged. And he says this in verse 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face so that their hearts may be encouraged. That's the, the, the first purpose, the first reason for his struggle is so that they would understand his concern for their hearts, that they would be encouraged. And this, this verb, this term underlying this Greek term underlying this, this word encouraged, it, it, it almost means a, a coming alongside, a comforting, a strengthening. It, it's, it's as if a consoling or an, uh, a, a warning, an exhortation. It, it has all of these meanings wrapped up into one that he is trying to encourage them and encourage their hearts through his prayers that they would be strengthened. And, and he says, not just them as their whole person, but specifically their hearts. Because the heart is the center of the person. It, it's, it's from which everything flows, as Proverbs 4.23 tells us and, and warns us, to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That our heart is in a sense, a command center. And in our day and age, we, we think of that more along the lines of the mind or the brain, that the brain is the control center. But the Word of God says it's more along the lines of the heart. And these, these things, the, the inner man is of heart, mind, and soul, according to Scripture, it's almost interconnected and intertwined. They are different parts, but in a sense, the Bible speaks of the heart. The heart as the seat of the emotions and the will. It, it, what drives a human being. It, it's, it's what drives us to do the things we do. And Paul's concern for the Colossians is that their hearts would be encouraged. That their hearts would be strengthened. That they themselves would be fortified. And, and that's the purpose of this whole letter. That the Colossian church would be fortified. The, this letter wasn't necessarily corrective. There wasn't necessarily some problem that he was correcting, but he was trying to fortify them against the, the, the false teaching, against the dangers that were around them. He was trying to strengthen them in Christ. So part of them, part of the extent of his ministry was his prayers. And he, he wants the Colossians to understand his struggle in praying for them. He also wants them to understand his concern for their hearts and, and then to understand his desire for their unity. That as their hearts would be encouraged through his prayers and through uh, just the, the, the disciplines of the, the Christian life, through um, obeying the Lord, that they would then be knit together in love. 
that their hearts would be one. He, he desired that, their, that they would be one in heart, that they would be one in their love for one another, that they would be one in mind, in their thoughts, in their purposes, in their designs, in, in, in their activities. And unity is a vital principle in the church. Because one of the key tactics and designs of the enemy of the devil is to sow discord, to create division. And he's very subtle and effective at doing that. But if we are to stand, if we are to be effective, we need to be unified. We need to be unified, and that begins with our hearts, our concern for one another, our love for one another, and also our understanding of one another and the church and the purpose for the church. As I said, Paul wrote Colossians along with um, the letter to Philippians and the Ephesians at at roughly the same time. In many of these letters, we call these the prison epistles. Because Paul wrote them in prison, and many of them um, are almost the same. They're very similar. He teaches a lot of the same principles, and you can mirror them. You can go back and forth. And in Philippians chapter 2, in the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this to the Philippian church. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, what Paul prayed for the Colossians, his his struggle for the Colossians, his intent, his purposes of prayer for the Colossians was the same for the Philippians. It was the same for the Ephesians. It was the same for all the other churches. Though some of the churches would need different instruction and different correction and they had different needs and different concerns. There are still Christians in a Christian church living the Christian life and and they were to live according to the same principles. To be one. So Paul wants the Colossians to know the extent of his ministry, to understand his struggle for them to understand his concern for their hearts, to understand his desire for their unity, also to understand his hope for their full assurance. Verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. And all these things, beginning with his prayers and the purpose of his prayers, it's almost like a domino effect. It's like one impacts the other, which impacts the other, which impacts the other. Almost like a chain reaction. But the main objective is that they would stand firm in Christ, that they would know Christ, that they would know all the mysteries, the knowledge of God's mystery, meaning the gospel, which is in Christ, all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in knowing these things, they would experience full assurance. The riches of full assurance. And assurance, assurance of salvation, of who you are, of what you are in Christ, it's one of the biggest counseling issues in the church. To know that you are saved, to know that you are in Christ, to know that you have salvation, to know that you have eternal life, to know that that no one can take that from you. That, that's a, actually a doctrine which the um, Catholic Church hates. They hate it. Because if you doubt your salvation, you can be controlled. You can be manipulated. But also, if you doubt your salvation, you waver. You're ineffective in the, in the Christian faith. And, and it, it ebbs and flows for most of us. It waxes and wanes. But assurance is, it, it, it's not 
so much found in, um, in what we do, but what we know. And our knowledge is based on what Christ has done. It's all centers on his work and who he is and what he is. When we understand that, when we come to the full understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, of the greatness of this gospel, which is Christ, we can experience and enjoy the riches of full assurance. And this is what Paul desires for the Colossians. This full assurance, which is found in the full understanding of God's gospel, of of the holiness and the justice and the greatness of God, the sinfulness of man, the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God displayed in the cross of Christ, the the greatest act of love in the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants them to know. This is what he prays for. This is why he struggles in prayer. He agonizes. He labors. He toils. It's the same thing he prays for the Ephesians. And and you can turn there in Ephesians chapter 3. And and like I said, many of these these prison epistles, they, they kind of mirror one another. They support one another. There's a lot of the same things that are happening. And as Paul prays for the Colossians, so he prays for the Ephesians as well. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 13 to 21, he, he explains his, his prayer for them and what he's praying for. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying that they may know what Christ has done on their their behalf and who Christ is and the riches of His love and His mercy for them as sinners. All of these riches of full assurance, these treasures of wisdom and knowledge that it's found in the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's, it's about Jesus Christ as the second Adam, as the perfect man, that he came and he did what Adam could not do, what Adam failed to do, to, to be that perfect man, to live according to God's design, that he is the God-man, he is both fully God and fully man, and, and therefore he is able to be the perfect mediator to to pay the eternal uh, consequences for our sin, but also to represent us as sinners. Uh, He is the Redeemer King, the the long-awaited Messiah. He is our great high priest that intercedes for us continually, that has gone into the Holy of Holies. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Our Creator with us and within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 1, that this is the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. God in us. He came for us to redeem sinners, to conform us into His image. He walks with us. He's inside of us. He is amongst us. This is the greatness of this gospel. And in whom, as Paul goes on in verse 3 of chapter 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He prays that the Colossians would understand that. 
and that we would understand that, and that the Ephesians would understand that, and the Philippians would understand that, that all believers would understand how great the treasure is in Christ. And, and treasure, just saying that word may bring up so many different images in your mind. Most of you, it's probably, maybe you think of um, a pirate chest <laughs> of gold. And you think of the open chest and it's overflowing with gold and jewels and stuff. And and, and sometimes treasure, we think of it uh, in the singular, like one chest or one treasure, you know, but here it's, it's, it's plural. And it's not just treasures, plural, but this, this word could also be translated storehouses. And, and treasure is a good translation, but I, I think storehouses is greater, as if it, it's not just a chest of treasure or like a gold mine or a bank vault. This is storehouses. It, it makes me think, and some of you have maybe seen these movies, some, some of you probably not, but it makes me think of The Lord of the Rings. And, and there, there's, a, there's a part in one of the movies where they go into the, the under the mountain in these caves and the, these, the, where the dwarves have tunneled out this big palace, and, and it's just massive rooms and in one of the in the the hobbit movie and in the hobbit book there is a a part where there's a dragon and he's in one of those caverns which have been hollowed out a mountain hollowed out and massive which you know in in the movie it seems like the 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 ceilings are like a hundred foot tall with these massive columns and it just stretches for Yards and and maybe even uh, football fields and stadiums and, and and maybe even miles. And there's just gold and jewels and coins and and, and artifacts and and uh, uh, jewelry, ancient things. It, it's it's treasures galore. And, and it, it's one thing to, you know say a treasure chest, but it's another to say storehouses and caverns and, and to think of the treasure in that way. And it's different because there's a reason why it says treasure and not money. Because to have a chest full of money, just bills, or, or even to have the same uh, valuation of that cavern and that storehouse full of treasure, it wouldn't be the same. Because when we think of, of treasure, it's not just the monetary value. It's, it's the thing. It's the, the story behind the jewelry and the crown and the weaponry and the artifact. It's, it's how it was made. It's everything that goes beyond that makes it the treasure that it is. It's just not the monetary value. It's special. It's unique. And in Christ. There are treasures, plural, and infinite, unique aspects of who he is and what he has done and his promises and what he will do and, and his attributes, his wisdom and his knowledge and his perfections and his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy and his power and his wrath and his justice, his unity with the Father and the Spirit. How he will reign in righteousness when he returns. Sometimes we we get bored in our Bible reading. And because familiarity breeds contempt. And, and, and we hit these plateaus and we think we um, understand it and we've grasped it and, and that, that that's good and well and, and we tuck that away and and, and we forget that there's great depth to the Word of God. That, that we will never exhaust the riches of the Word of God as we dig into it and we understand how it's interconnected and the themes and um, the attributes of God that it displays. But more than that, that 
it's not just understanding the words and the principles and the lessons, but the person it points to. And that we will spend all eternity understanding who God is, so long as we are in Him. That's why Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11, he, he, he spends all the first 11 chapters of Romans giving this detailed, comprehensive uh, explanation of the gospel and the greatness of the gospel, beginning with the sinfulness of man and the just condemnation of man and the, the, the righteous wrath of God, but then also the great mercy and the love of God and justification by faith and, and how God is going to conform us into the image of Christ and not just redeem us as sinners, but that He will redeem Israel and then he, he will redeem His whole creation. And then at the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul, he can't, he wants to know more. He wants to understand more. But it's, it's unfathomable. God is incomprehensible. But yet, we need to strive to push on to know Him more. And Paul is just, he's confounded. He's blown away by the depth of the riches and wisdom of not, and the knowledge of God and how he has worked in creation and how he will continue to work. This is a treasure. This is the mystery. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he says, concerning how they are to live, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And the principle that Jesus is trying to explain here is don't live worldly. Don't live for the things of this world. Don't um, strive and labor to store up treasures for, uh, for yourselves, to big, bigger and bigger barns. Store up treasures for yourself in heaven. And part of that is he, he's speaking of, of, of giving and serving for the sake of the church and the, and the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom. But he also says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're preoccupied and consumed with um, the things of this world and, and what you will do in your career and where you will live and what you will have and your experiences and your exploits and your accomplishments, then your treasure is here on earth and that's where your heart will be and, and, and all those things are temporary. They, they fade away. And not only that, but as he says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, Who's to say that we can hold on to all that? You know, you could amass yourself a, a great fortune. And, uh, you know, one lawsuit could take that away. Um, not necessarily because you did anything wrong. A turn in the economy could take that away. It's all temporary. But Jesus is saying, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not just in what you do and what you give and how you serve, but 
in your focus, in your where your heart is, that your heart would be fixed on Christ and, and his kingdom and his purposes. And then Jesus would go on to say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He will supply your every earthly need. You just focus on him and his kingdom. And as I said, what the apostle prays for the Colossians, he also prays for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, you can turn there and see this, how he prays and he labors and he continually struggles for the Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 to 23, he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our problem, a lot of times, is these things become common. They become uh, mundane. We... We've been there before. We've read that. We understand that. And we can start to grow to treat holy things as common. And we gloss over them. And we forget about the greatness of what Christ has done for us and in us and through us and his promises. This is why Paul prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. This is, this is where we, we, we get that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Which is a simple spiritual song, but we, we need that. We, we need to ask God to do that often. Because our eyes are, are veiled and our, our vision is clouded by earthly things, by what we're going to do later this afternoon, where we're going to eat lunch, what we're going to do tomorrow or next week, the the trials that we're facing. And we forget the greatness of Jesus Christ and, and what he's going to do in this world. Paul's desire for all believers, for the Ephesians, for the Colossians, for the Philippians, for everyone, is that their hearts would be encouraged that their hearts would be strengthened and enlightened so that they would not only be united in love, but that they would know how great a salvation they have in Christ because then then they would experience the goal of his ministry. Paul, he has a twofold purpose in writing this letter, that they would know the extent of his ministry, for them to know the extent of his struggles on their behalf, what he is doing for the Colossians while he is in prison, that he is still laboring, he is still toiling for them. But he also wants them to, to know the and, and to experience the goal of his ministry. His purpose is for them to experience the goal of his ministry. In verses 4 to 5, he says, I say this, Concerning his prayers, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He has a twofold purpose for them, that he would he would explain to them his prayers, his struggles, and the purpose of his prayers, what he desires for them but also that they would experience the goal, the objective of his prayers, that, that they would be impervious to false teaching, that, 
that no one could delude them with plausible arguments. No one could deceive them, that they would not be led astray, that they would be standing firm in the faith, that they would know the truth, that they would understand who Christ is and what he has done and have full assurance that they would see the riches and the treasure of Jesus Christ and that they would fix their eyes on him and follow him and labor for him and and honor him. Because then no one could deceive them. No one could delude them with plausible arguments, with, with worldly wisdom and human logic. Jesus even prays for his own disciples in John 17, 17. He he prays to the Father in this high priestly prayer. And he says, um, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Meaning, sanctify them. Make them holy. Set them apart in your truth. Um, Protect them from all the worldly wisdom, from all the philosophies, from all the error, from all the heresies in this world. Set them apart. Protect them. Guard them. Guide them. In your truth, your word is truth. Paul prays that they would be impervious to false teaching in that they would know the truth. The Baptist Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said this concerning this passage. He says, Paul desires the full use of the intellect in grasping the great mystery of Christ, and it calls for the full and balanced exercise of all one's mental powers that they may know unto full knowledge. This use of this term, epigenosis, meaning full additional knowledge, is Paul's reply to the Gnostics uh, who, who who were assaulting the church with Gnosticism. He says, this is Paul's reply to the Gnostics with the limited and perverted gnosis, knowledge. Paul confronts these pretentious intellectuals, the Gnostics, with the bold claim that Christ sums up all wisdom and knowledge. They are there in Christ, as every believer knows by fresh and repeated discovery. All all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. We don't need someone else to teach us, as, as John would say in 1 John. Yes, God has, has appointed prophets and apostles and teachers preachers to build up the body to equip the saints but that's according to his word we don't need extra knowledge we have his word and this is especially critical in the in the greco-roman world in in which there was a time when they they had philosophers who would and orators who would speak in the town square and had had amphitheaters and places they would go to discuss philosophy and wisdom and, and, and ideologies and the meaning of life. And this is where many of these Gnostics come from and the false teachers that they come with plausible arguments concerning Christ that he's, he's not really God, he's just a demigod, he's an emanation, he's one of the gods, he's just another god. It's absolutely false, it's not true at all. Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And Paul's desire is that no one would delude them with plausible arguments. No one would delude them with with human logic, with worldly wisdom. And that they would have the discernment to recognize that error, to recognize false teaching. A.T. Robertson once again says this. He says, the art of persuasion is the height of oratory. But it easily degenerates into trickery and momentary and flashy deceit, such as Paul disclaimed in 1 Corinthians 2.4, where he uses the very adjective, pithos, meaning persuasive, of which pithanos is another form. It is curious how winning champions of error like the Gnostics and modern, modern faddists can be with plausibility that catches the gullible. That we can be, um, in a sense, led astray for the time. If we are truly born again, we will not be um, led completely astray. The Spirit will keep us. But there is a sense that we can be deceived. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 
verse 1 to 5, he says to the Corinthian church, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What Paul's saying there is he's, he's saying, I was not like the philosophers. I was not like these, these Greek orators. I was not like the, the religious teachers you are used to. I simply came proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. The gospel is, is in a sense, very simple, and yet it is infinitely deep. The, the depth of the gospel is, is the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, but the simplicity of the gospel is repent and believe. And you will be saved. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. See Him that God came to redeem sinners like you. And it's interesting because every heresy and and false teaching is in one way or another either an assault on the true nature of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, or it is an assault on His perfect work of salvation in saying that something has to be added to His sacrifice on our part some subtle form of works righteousness. You can see this in all the cults, all the false religions, even if they, whether they acknowledge Christ or not. There's there's some false religions that don't acknowledge Christ, but um, there are some that do, like Islam. And and they attack both Jesus Christ as God and and his sacrifice. Every heresy, every false teaching, you can go through and you can see it's an assault on either the person of Jesus Christ or the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's prayer is that they would be so grounded in Christ and in the gospel that their hearts would be so encouraged, so unified, so sure within the understanding and knowledge of the gospel of God's mystery, which is in Christ, that no one would be able to delude them. No one would be able to deceive them concerning Christ or concerning any false teaching. That they would be impervious to false teaching. And then second, that they would be well-grounded in the faith. Because as they understand the gospel, as they reach all the riches of full assurance, they are rooted and grounded in the faith. They, they are firm. Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 2, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wants them to not only be orderly and in line and well-established, but he, it's almost as if he, he, he's so confident in his prayers and, and in the power of the Spirit, ultimately in the power of God and, and, and in the, the people that he sends through Epaphroditus and Tychicus and, and, and the teachers in this letter. He, he's so confident in the power of God that he says he, he, he's rejoicing to see your good order. He... he, he He's he's confident in his prayers. And when I went to seminary, I had to take a a prayer class in which we were instructed to pray for one hour every day. And our professor would say, when you pray, make sure you finish your prayers with a strong amen. And what he meant by that, that, We need to pray in faith. We need to pray as if it's a done deal. And that in no way means that we are to presume upon God, like, you know, I'm praying for this car and God's, he's going to give me a car. But as 
Jesus said, if, if we pray in his name, meaning according to his will, what he desires, he will give it to us. Those spiritual things of faith and holiness, of witness, of, of proclaiming his gospel, of expanding his kingdom. He will answer those prayers. And it may not be in our time frame, but he will answer those prayers. And we need to pray, especially if it's spiritual prayers, especially as Paul's prayers concerning the faith of the Colossians and concerning their good order and their firmness of faith, we need to pray as if it's going to be answered because that's directly in line with the will of God. This is the whole purpose and goal of Paul's office as an apostle. To build up the church. And so he can pray saying that he's rejoicing to see it answered. To see one day that he will see their good order and the firmness of their faith. This is his whole purpose in life. To see not only the Colossians, but all the churches well grounded in the faith. This is his his job description, so to speak, is, is given in Ephesians chapter 4. Why, why God sent him, why God called him to this stewardship. She's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus to, to explain um, why God gives uh, leaders in the church and his intent for the church. And he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what Paul lived for. This is his goal. This was his purpose. This was his intention that, that they, the Colossians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, every church, the Corinthians, would be well grounded in the faith, that they would be impervious to false teaching, and that they would experience the goal of his ministry for them. One commentator writes this. He says, though not physically with them, he felt his spiritual oneness with them and rejoiced in their orderliness and in the firmness of their faith. This phrase, your order, contains a military term, taxing, connoting the orderly array of a band of disciplined soldiers. Firm translate, translates this, this term, a word meaning solidity and compactness. In applying it to the faith of the Colossians, Paul emphasizes the unyielding nature of their faith, or as another commentator puts it, the stiffness of its adherence to its one object, Christ. Like the word for orderly, firm belonged to military parlance. It may therefore mean something like solid front. If this is the imagery Paul intended, he sees the situation of the Colossians as being like that of an army under attack and affirms that their lines were unbroken, their discipline intact, and their faith in reliance on Christ unshaken. As I said, the, the whole purpose of this letter is to fortify the Colossians, to fortify the church, to strengthen them. And, and Paul's prayers for them is that they would be strengthened through their hearts being encouraged, through their hearts being united, that they would understand the, the riches and the treasures of the gospel so that they would be impervious to false teaching, that they would be well-grounded in the faith. And, and he says that he is rejoicing to see this. He's rejoicing to see this. He has never met them, but 
He's rejoicing in the day that he will see their firmness and their their firmness in the faith and their orderliness and their understanding of the gospel, their spiritual growth. You know, one, one of the first things you hear from friends and family members upon returning from uh, deployment is, how did it go? And, and whether they use those words or not, that's usually what they want to know. And, and not just, how did it go for you? But to hear the stories and to hear, more importantly, the results of their support for you, to, to know how their letters and their packages impacted you, how, how they assisted you, how they encouraged you. And what they really want to hear is, is praise reports and to learn how their prayers were answered. This is what Paul wants to know. It's what he wants to see. It's what he's rejoicing to see. The, the same is true about uh, 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 an adult child returning home from college. You want to hear how they've done since the last time you've seen them, what they've learned and how they've grown. You're rejoicing to see their growth and, and, and what they've become. This is why Paul is struggling on their behalf. This is why he labors in prayer. This is why he toils for them to rejoice to see their good order, their faith. The Apostle John says in his letter, Third John, he says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking into the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. If we are parents, we can see that. We can see that desire, that attitude, that longing to see your children walking in the truth, to see their faith, to see them well-grounded and firm and established in the faith, doing great things. This is Paul's heart. This is his desire. This is his desires of, of all the apostles. They see these churches and these believers as their children. And they're rejoicing to see them walking in the truth. They, they, they want to see that. They long for the day to see them walking in the truth, to hear the praise reports, the exploits of them in the faith, of how the church has done, to hear how their prayers were answered, how, uh, to, to see the produce of their labors, to see them walking in the truth. For some of you here today, it may be that you're not walking in the truth. And that, that may be, be because of some pattern of sin in your life, or you've fallen, you're struggling, it's some besetting sin, can't just seem to get victory, or maybe it's ignorance, or, or maybe it's that you don't even see yourself as a sinner. You think you're good. You think you're, you're well. You think... You're in the kingdom when, in fact, you may not. You may be self-deceived. And the answer for you is the same for a believer who's not walking in the truth. That you seek the truth. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That we are all to seek Him to call upon Him while He is near, to repent from our sins, to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to follow Him as Lord, as Savior, as Master, as God. And if we have done that, if we have repented, if, if we have believed, if we have salvation, we are to continue to do that. We are to continue to seek Him. We are to continue to follow Him. We are to continue to trust Him. We are to grow in Him, to know Him, to love Him, to search out the riches of all the treasures that are found within Jesus Christ. He is the goal of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the purpose of our faith. He is the end of our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is why we are here, why we exist, why this church exists. 
is the meaning of it all. And at the end of the age, at the end of creation, we will see that it all exists for Jesus, for his sake. And that we are to live for his sake and to seek him for his sake, sake and to know him for his sake and to worship him because he is worthy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his person, for his work, for his office. For who he is, he is and what he has done and what he will do for his promises. And yet, Lord, we confess. And if we are honest, we must confess that we don't know him as we ought. We don't seek him as we ought. We don't honor him as we ought to. We often treat holy things as common. And we contend to go through the motions. Lord, help us. Help us to see Jesus Christ as he really is. To know him as we ought. To honor him as we ought. To follow him. To obey him. To glorify him. In our lives. Today. Throughout the week. And until the time in which you bring us home, in Christ's name we pray.